Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea, and that is on page, I'll tell you when I get there. It's after Daniel, so if you don't have a Bible, it's the Pew Bible 797. So page 797, we're not going to read the whole book. I'm going to cover the whole book, we're not going to read the whole book, okay? I'm going to read to you. Hosea 1, verses 1 and one through 3. Okay, 1, 1 through 3, and then we'll pray. And then we're going to try to cover 14 chapters in our time together. We're not going to read every verse, don't worry. Okay? Hear the word of the Lord from Hosea chapter 1, beginning on verse 1 on page 797 of the Pew Bible in front of you. The word of the Lord came to Hosea son of Biri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and of Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him. So here he's talking to Hosea. Go and marry a woman of promiscuity, of sexual immorality. And have children of promiscuity, or of sexual immorality, of whoring. For the land is committing blatant acts of whoring, of promiscuity, by abandoning the Lord. So, Hosea went and married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, this is our prayer, that your word, the word of Christ, through the book of Hosea, would dwell richly among us, that your spirit would fill us by teaching us and enlightening our eyes and the eyes of our heart to your word, to understand it, to see your glory, to see the glories of Christ, to see ourselves, and to be changed by your love. We love because you first loved us. And so, Father, help me, help us soften our hearts, make us receptive, attentive, guard us from Satan who would like to take thoughts out of our hearts and make it go one ear and not the other. Guard us from idolatry, which would make the ground shallow and hard for the seed of your word to be planted deep. Change us, we pray, by your Spirit's help and change our children as they hear your word taught. Protect them and change them by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everyone wrestles with guilt. That's a common thing. You don't have to ask anyone. You, I just, if I look at any human being, they all face battles with guilt. And so what we all want is freedom from guilt. We all want forgiveness. Everyone wants freedom. Now, when we think of freedom, we think mostly of freedom externally. I want freedom from other people. I want people, freedom from other people who are going to try to oppress me or control me or control me with their thoughts and their opinions from my bosses, from my work, from the government, from the church. I want freedom from other people pressing in on me, we might say. Everyone wants that. Everyone wants to be free to do what they want. But you know what people want even more than just freedom from others? And they might not think of it this way. They don't want freedom just merely externally, but internally. Freedom on the inside. 
Because you can have freedom to do what you want. You can be rich and famous and free from all other, you know, do whatever you want externally in terms of your interactions with other people. But if you're not free in here, if you're not feeling free here and you feel guilty here, that's, that's the worst kind of slavery. Because in one sense, you could be free, but if you're not free internally, you're not feeling free. And often that comes because of guilt, because of a guilty conscience, because of sin. So we all want forgiveness, we all want freedom, and we all want to flourish in a perfect world. Everyone wants that utopia. The problem is, we're not perfect. We're not fit for a perfect world because we're not perfect. So even if there was a perfect world, if you entered into that perfect world or that perfect situation, guess what you've just done? You've made it what? Imperfect. Because you bring your sin and your self-centeredness into that perfect situation. We are all sinners. We're all needing forgiveness. That's our problem. And because of this, even on the inside, we're aware of our guilt. We're aware of our shame. We are aware that we're not good enough or worthy for God or God's perfect world. And so as we feel this, sometimes we can actually make the mistake of feeling, well, not the mistake. We are unworthy of God's love, right? Because of our sin. But sometimes we can let that reality affect us where we actually feel like God doesn't actually love us because we are actually unworthy objectively, but God loves us anyways, and in spite of it, we actually feel, oh, God doesn't love me. I know he says he does, but I don't really feel that he does. And so we feel unsure that God really loves us and wants us, even though um, we know he says it, but we also know that we're not worthy. And so here's the question. Here's the big battle in our hearts. God's word of love versus our thoughts and feelings of unworthiness. That's the battle. God's word of love to us versus our feelings of unworthiness, our thoughts of unworthiness. Or, for some of you, some of you think you are worthy. <laughs> and if that's you, it's your delusional worthiness versus the word of the Lord, of God's love. That you're delusional in thinking you're worthy of God's love because we're not in our sin. All right. So in light of that, we read, I'll read it again, Hosea 1.1. So in light of that, we have Hosea who comes in verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri. So here's the prophet. His name is Hosea. He's the son of Beeri. During the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So Hosea is a historical figure in a certain time in history, around 750 or 760 BC to about 703. Somewhere in that 50-year range is his ministry, okay? In the, in the mid to um, late... Early, I don't know how to do it in BC. Um, you know, the seven, 700s, okay? From 760 to 703 or so uh, BC. He's in that window, give or take. And, and he's, he has a prophecy that he's giving to the people of Israel. Now, to know this prophecy, this is why the prophets are so hard to read, is you have to keep the whole Bible story in mind. So let me tell you this, the Bible story briefly, okay? Again, briefly, as brief as I can. Here it is. God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, his people in his place, to work it and to keep his covenant. But what did they do? Did they obey God's command or disobey God's command? They disobeyed. And so what did God do? The day you eat of it, you're certainly going to die. And so he kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. It was a perfect world. And they were there, God's people in God's place. But they did not submit to God's rule and blessing. So God kicked them out. So now all of the world and all their children are cursed because of, by, by nature and by choice, they're sinners. And so they keep Cain kills Abel, Adam and Eve's first two sons. One kills the other, and it gets bad. It's just continually bad. And then God says to this new humanity, he picks out Abraham and says, hey, Abraham, go to the land. I'm going to show you. I'm going to put you, your people. I'm going to make you a people. 
I'm going to put you in a place, a land that I show you. And you're going to be a blessing and your people will be under my rule. Okay? So they were in the Garden of Eden. They're kicked out. Now God picks Abraham out of the mess and says, I'm going to, I promise you, Abraham, I'm going to put your people in a place. And they're going to be in that land, that perfect place, with, my, with, your, with your people becoming my people. And they'll be a blessing and they'll be under my rule. So then God busts this nation out of Egypt. It's the nation of Israel. They're in Egypt. God breaks them out of Egypt, and he brings them to the land flowing with milk and honey, right? It's the, it's the perfect place. It's God's people, his nation, in his place. All they have to do is keep the covenant, the Israelic covenant, through Moses, Ten Commandments, and all the rest of the ceremonial laws and civil laws and all that. All they got to do is keep that, and they get to stay in the land, and they won't certainly die. Just like all you got to do is don't eat the fruit, you stay. All you have to do is keep the, the Israelic covenant, you stay. Did they keep the covenant? Well, they weren't keeping the covenant. And Hosea is at this place. They're all still in the land flowing with milk and honey. The kingdom has split in two, north and south. Judah in the south, Israel in the north. And so Hosea, during this time of kings in the north and south, Hosea is prophesying to the northern kingdom. And he's saying, you are not keeping the Israeli covenant. That's his message, okay? And he's warning them that they're going to get kicked out of the land. So that, that's the story. You got it? You guys tracking? So Adam and Eve, Abrahamic promise, and then Israelic covenant, they're in the land. Two kingdoms. Okay. That being said, um, um, Hosea, he's going to warn them, now the exile is going to come. You're about to get kicked out of the land because you're not obeying. So God and Hosea want you and me today. God and Hosea want us to know that God deeply loves us so that we return to him in love and enjoy his new creation kingdom. That's how it applies to us today. There's this promised land. They are going to get kicked out of the land, but God's going to promise that there is a land to come in the end. It's the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And that's a new creation kingdom. And here's what the message of Hosea to the church today. You are sinning. God loves you. Respond to God's love so that you enjoy God and enter into this new creation kingdom to enjoy God forever. That's, that's it. That's it. So here's how I'm staying the main goal. Okay, here's how I wrote it. If you thought that was the main goal, that's sort of the main goal, but here it is stated succinctly. Here's what they want to accomplish. Return in love to Yahweh. That's Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Return in love to Yahweh, your God. Return in love to Yahweh, your God, so that you enjoy God's love in his new creation kingdom. That's the message of Hosea. That's the goal of Hosea. Return in love to Yahweh, your God, so that you... Enjoy God's love in his new Christian kingdom. Okay? Now, to return in love to God, we, we, we respond in love because God first what? He first loved us, right? He, we love because he first loved us. That's 1 John four nineteen. Now, how can we return in love, Hosea? Okay, if that's the message here, return in love so that you enjoy God's love and his new Christian kingdom. That's his message to his original readers. They didn't understand what we understand today with Christ. But this is the same message to us today I'm looking at this, I'm asking Hosea, Hosea, how do we do this? How do we return in love to God? And Hosea's gonna say three ways, or three steps, three things, three steps to return in love to Yahweh. Here they are. Okay, here's the points of the sermon now. Um, See his love, hear the doom, or hear his judgment, hear the doom, or hear the judgment, and respond to Yahweh, okay? There it is. See his love, See God's love, hear of God's judgment, the doom that's coming, and um, respond to Yahweh. 
Those are the three steps of things you need to be doing if you're going to return in love to God because, um, he, because he first loved us. Okay, so number one, see, see the love. If you're taking notes, here's how we're going to break it up. See the love is chapters one through three. See the love is chapters one through three. Hear the doom is chapters four and five. And then chapter six to the end is respond to Yahweh. Okay? So one, in, one through three, see the love. Four and five, hear the doom. Um, and six through 14 is respond to Yahweh. Now, um, let's start with see the love. Now, Hosea might be one of the most famous minor prophets, and I guarantee, well, I guarantee, that's too strong of a word. I'm going to guess, <laughs> that's a step down, right? I'm going to guess that when we're done with the series, if there's one minor prophet you remember besides Jonah, it's going to be Hosea. And it's because of this first point about seeing God's love. So, how does, this, how does this unfold? And this, these first three chapters, really, it's one way of summarizing the book, and then the, the next two parts are another way of summarizing the book's message, okay? So God gives a picture to his original audience and us so that we can have this message burned into our minds about returning to God's covenant love. So if you're gonna see the love, point number one, see the love of God. To see the love, there's a few things here. First, we're gonna see the doom, and then we're gonna see the point of, of what Hosea is doing, and then we'll see the love finally here. So, so first, we gotta see, um, we gotta see the, the doom. So in verses two through nine of chapter one, look at verse two and three. Actually, I'm not gonna read, I'll just repeat it. God says to Hosea, you can look up here. God says to Hosea, go marry an adulterous, sexually immoral, loose, whoring woman. A woman of promiscuity. Go find her and go marry her. And then go have children with her. So what does Hosea do? He goes and finds a woman of promiscuity and he marries her. And he has children with her. Now, um, in that day, especially if you're going to be a prophet, a spiritual leader, um, it, you know, marrying a virgin was, was the ideal. It is the ideal to marry a virgin, right? And so for a spiritual leader to do something like this is pretty pretty outlandish for God to command him to do this, okay? And so, um, and so he does it. He, he goes and marries a woman of promiscuity, and he says, go have what? In verse um, 2, he says, um, go marry a woman and have children. So he's going to have three children, okay? You're going to see the doom through the three children. So child number one, child number one is named, in verses 3 through 5, child number one is named Jehu, uh, not Jehu, I'm sorry, Jezreel. So he marries Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and so they are intimate, they consummate their marriage, and they're, they're sexually intimate, and then she gets pregnant, and then she conceives, and she has a son, and the son's name is Jezreel. Now, why Jezreel? This is verses three through five. I'm gonna do a lot of summarizing here. Jezreel, because God is going, Jezreel is one of the famous valleys in the, in the northern kingdom. Because God is saying, you know what? Name him Jezreel because at Jezreel, I'm going to use another nation to smash Israel and kick them out of the land. So I want your son's name to be a symbol of what I'm going to do to Israel. Doom is coming. And it's coming at Jezreel. So name your son Jezreel and tell all the people your son's name is Jezreel because I'm coming to bring judgment. It's pretty strong, right? And so um, look at verse um, 4. I just want to point out why, what their sin is here, at least in a picture form. Then the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel, for in a little while I will bring, bring, bring bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now Jehu, on that day I'll break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So God's saying, I'm about to end this kingdom in Jezreel. So name your son Jezreel and I'm going to end the house of Jehu. The house of Jehu is the house of the kings in Israel. Okay, it's the dynasty, the, the four 
four-generation dynasty. Jehu, now I want you to understand Jehu a little bit here because the Jehu is a picture of the sins of Israel and really our sins. Here's what Jehu did. Jehu was called by God to kill Ahab's family. Ahab was the most wicked king in Israel. So God says, Jehu, you come, you kill all their family because I told them they're going to be judged for their sin. So Jehu cleans their clock. He kills all the prophets of Baal. He kills all the idolatrous people and prophets and leaders. He even tricks them. Hey, I want to celebrate your, your God. So let's all be in temple. So he gets them in temple. Then he locks the door and kills them all. You know, he, he, he cleaned out Israel from their idolatry. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Especially with God saying, he, God commanding him to do it. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Good thing. Here's Jehu's problem though. He's in Israel. After he does that, he says, you're only supposed to worship Yahweh. But the original king of Israel, when they split, Jeroboam, he put a golden calf in the north and in the south. And he said, that the golden calf is Yahweh. So go worship Yahweh in the north or in the south and don't go to Judah. So Jehu wiped out all the idolatrous prophets, but he said, you still have to worship Yahweh. But guess where you can worship Yahweh? At the golden calves. Is that good or bad? That's terrible, right? It's not, as bad as, it's not as bad as worshiping false gods. It's still the true God, his name at least, but it's not the true God when you're disobeying him and you're worshiping golden calves, right? So in one sense, this is a picture of us. We like to obey God halfway. We like to obey God according to what we say, but then we, we want to put God in our own golden calf image. So not what God says he is based on his word. We want to obey God based on what we think about God. So we're like, yeah, I know God says that in the Bible, but I'm going to edit it just a little bit because I want to live this way in my life. Do you guys see that? We're all tempted to do that. That's Jehu. That's Israel. Hosea is saying, you guys are sinning. And they're like, well, we're worshiping Yahweh now. Jehu cleaned it. We're not worshiping any um, false gods. Well, some of them are. And even then, it's your compromised, half-hearted, halfway obedience and halfway worship, which is why your son is named Jezreel, and I'm going to crush Israel and kick them out of the land. Does that make sense? You guys tracking here? So that, that's the first son. Then the second child is a daughter, and he says about the daughter, name this daughter Lo Ruhamah, which means no compassion. Name this daughter no compassion. You know why? Because when I, when I look at Israel, guess what I have? No compassion. Okay, so the name, your name means what it is, right? Uh, your name is Rock, that's your name. Your name is Key, that's just, the, the word is what it is. So your name is no compassion. Imagine me naming one of my kids, no compassion. You know why? Because God has no compassion on you, Bethany Baptist Church, because of your idolatry and your stubbornness and your fake Christianity. That's what God is saying. Name, name your daughter no compassion because I have no compassion. I'm gonna judge you for your sins and I will have no compassion on you. House of Israel, the north. That's the second child. The third child. Let's go to the third child. Then you have the third child, which is a son, in verse 9. So go to verse 9, and it says, Then the, she had another child, and they said, Then the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Because guess what, Israel? You are not my people. I'm disowning you. You were my people, but now you're not my people. You're not my people because of your sin and idolatry. And so that is the doom. You see the doom here. God says, to Hosea, marry a woman of immorality, promiscuity, have children of promiscuity, and name them Jezreel, no compassion, and not my people, because I have a message for my former people, that they are not my people anymore. That's the doom. Judgment is coming. Okay? Now, um, so that, that, that you see the doom, but then what's the point of it? Look at chapter 2. Let's go to chapter 2 now as we move along here. In chapter 2, um, 
God, uh, look at verse 2. It says, rebuke, chapter 2, verse 2 says, Call you, um, re- rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the promiscuity look from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. So here God is calling. Is God telling Hosea to tell his kids, hey, kids, rebuke your mom? Maybe. But he's also saying, Israel, you're rebuked. Children of Israel, rebuke, rebuke Israel because they are promiscuous. They are immoral and adulterous. Why? Look at verse 5. I'll just give you three verses here to point out from chapter two. Yes, their mother is promiscuous. She, promiscuous. she conceived them and acted shamefully. She, for she thought, I will follow my lovers, the men who give me food and water, my wool and flax and oil to drink. So she wants to go after other lovers. Verse eight, she does not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain, God says, the new wine, the fresh oil. I lavished silver and gold on her, which, she, which they used for what? For Baal, for another religion, for another God. Here's Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, giving and providing for them. And they use all of these gifts to worship who? Not God. To not be devoted to their husband, but to sleep with another man. Or if you're a wife, and I want you to connect emotionally with this, for your husband to sleep with another woman. You give all this, you serve and you love. And then they just take all that and commit adultery. That's what Israel's doing with God's gifts. And then one more verse here just to summarize it here, verse 13 of chapter 2. So what is God going to do? I will what? I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She put on her rings and her jewelry and followed her lovers. But she what? She forgot me. So they have promiscuity. They're ungrateful. They are betraying. They're treacherous. They're traitors. And they're idolatrous. So God says he will punish them. And then it says this very strange thing in verse 14. It's the first word of verse 14. Because I'm going to judge them, therefore what? God just switches gears here. Therefore I'm going to what? Persuade her. I'm going to lead her into the wilderness. And you think, why is he? Oh, he's going to persuade her. He's going to lead her into the wilderness. This is bad. He's going to hurt her, right? I'm going to lead her to the wilderness to what? To what? Speak tenderly to her. What? There I will give her vineyards back to her and make the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope. The valley of Achor is the valley of trouble. Achor means trouble. That's the valley where Achan was stoned. Remember that, where Achan was stoned? That was the first time that Israel was in the land and they disobeyed God. And they had to kill some guy because Israel brought, they brought trouble on Israel by their disobedience. And God's saying that worst place, it's almost like saying Sodom and Gomorrah, like the, 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 um, the worst places in the world and saying, God's gonna take the worst places, he's gonna make it a flourishing place for his people. Okay, there, there at this place, this gateway of hope, she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of the land of what? Egypt. So in this day, it's just like when she came out of Egypt, we call that the Exodus redemption. Just like God redeemed them out of Egypt, here a second Exodus is going to happen. Yeah, I'm mad. Yeah, I'm going to kick them out. But then when I bring them out to the wilderness, I'm going to speak tenderly to her. I'm going to love her. And I'm going to call her back. And when I call her out of the wilderness, I'm going to redeem her. Just like I took her out of Egypt, I'm going to take her out of this exile. It's a second Exodus because I love her. In that day, I'm going to make a new people, verses 16 and 17. On that day, look at verse 18, I will make a what? Verse 18, chapter 2. On that day, I will make a what? A covenant for them, a new covenant. We talked about new covenant last week. A new covenant, a new Israeli covenant. And then in verses uh, 21 and 22 and 23, I will make them a new place. I'll make them a new creation, a new earth. 
The sky will respond. The earth will respond. New grain, new, new wine, fresh oil, uh, a, a new land, and I'm going to have compassion on my people. So I'm going to put my people in my place under my rule. What do we call that? The kingdom of God. It's a new creation kingdom now. I will exile them. I will judge them. They are promiscuous and adulterous, and they deserve my judgment. And yet, I will speak tenderly to her. I'll bring her back. I'll, bring her to a new pe- I'll make her a new people in a new place under my rule forever. Okay, so there's what it means. Now, let's close off this picture of Hosea with going back to Hosea, chapter 3. So we see the point of this marrying and having these three children. But now Hosea has to do one more thing. Go to chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, go what? What's the next word after go? Go what? Go again and show love to a woman who is, not, who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites. Okay, so time out there. Um, go and love a woman. Now, there's a debate here. Is this saying go back to Gomer, your, your wife who left you? Or is this saying go to another woman with a second marriage? There's a debate, and I really don't know the answer. My leaning is towards it being the same wife. But either way, the point is God or Hosea is going to go to an adulterous wife and marry her showing some some intense, unbreakable, committed love, covenant love, okay? That's the point. Now, I think it's still Gomer, because it says go again, like go back, but that's debated, and I, I'm not sure on that, but here's the point. I'm going to preach it as if it is Gomer, but you might take the other view, and that's okay. Go again, go back to this wife, this woman, and show love to her, even though she's loved by who? Another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites. Go to verse 2. So what does Hosea do? Okay, imagine this. You marry a woman, you have kids with her, she leaves you, or vice versa if you're a woman, man leaves you and is living together with another person. And then God says to you, you know, you're reading your Bible and then all of a sudden there's this new verse in your Bible. It says, hey, PJ. Or, you know, hey, Francis, get up and go back to PJ even though he's living with another woman. Or get up, PJ, and go back to Francis even though she's living with another man. I mean, that's what it is. So what, does, what would you do? Would you go back? If God told you to, if God told you to, here's what God, well, what does Hosea do? Look at verse two. So what does he do, Hosea says? So I what? I bought her. He bought his wife. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. And he didn't even have enough money. He didn't have enough money, so what else did he have to do? He had to sell other stuff. He had to go to a pawn shop. Five bushels of barley. He couldn't even afford her with all his money, his cash. He had to get more than cash. He had to give some livestock up, give some possessions up. And I said to her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be promiscuous or belong to any man. And I will act the same way towards you. I will be faithful to you and you will be what? Faithful to me. There it is. Hosea shows love. He shows love to this woman. Why? Why does he do this? What's, what's God's point? What does God, why, why, does, why would God ask you to do some hard things in some hard relationships? Just so you know, let me preempt my application just a little bit here. God asks everyone here to do hard things in hard relationships. There's not one of you in this room who doesn't have that. Now, there's different levels of hard, but all of you have hard relationships. And God calls you to, 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 to serve him and display him in hard relationships. Here's what the displays of this hard relationship. Look at verse 4. For the Israelites must live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. So just like Hosea is going to take his wife back or take another woman 
and live with them faithfully. God's going to take his wife, even though she's adulterous, and what is he going to do? He's going to live with her. She's going to be desolate for a while, but um, in verse 5, afterward the people will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So you see the picture here? Just like Hosea took back his wife, he took back his wife and lived with her even though she was adulterous. Here God will take his people, Israel, bring them back, and they will seek God. They will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. They will seek their king, David, and they will return in the land. That's God's promise, that he's going to bring them back, this, this new divinity promise. This is also, by the way, at the end of chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to chapter 2, verse 1, this, this promise of them going under one ruler. This is the promise of coming back to King David, God's people, new wife back with him, in God's place, under God's rule, King who? King David. Now, King David's been dead for 300 years here. What does it mean, King David? Who's that referring to, you think? Who's going to be the new David who's going to sit on David's throne forever and ever? Jesus Christ. Now, this is 700 years before Christ comes. But what is God saying? I'm going to bring my wife back, my bride, and she will submit to the rule of King David, King Jesus, the son of David. Okay? So this is the picture that God will take an adulterous, whoring group of people like Bethany Baptist Church and say, you're sinful, you've betrayed me, and I'm going to take you back. You know why? Because I love you. I made, a, I made a covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that I would have a people and that I would put them in my place and be a blessing and they would be a blessing forever. And that is God keeping his promise to Abraham. It's his covenant, never stopping, never ending, never giving up, always and forever love, as Sally Lloyd-Jones likes to say. Do you see God's love here? Even in our sin, he's going to give a new Israeli covenant and keep it forever. So how do they become willing? How do, how do, if they're, how do they come back? I mean, if you're sold on the block, if, if you're, if you're adulterous and idolatrous, how does God make you new again? How does Hosea get a woman back after she already left and committed to another man? Do you see the answer in verse, chapter 3, verse 2? The first, few, the first phrase there? How does he get her back? So I what? Bought her. That's how Hosea gets his wife back. How does God get his wife back? So I bought her. Jesus says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. God buys his wife back through sending his son to die on the cross for their sins. That's the price. That's the shekels and barley for God. Sending his son, pouring out his wrath on Jesus to take an adulterous, whoring, promiscuous wife back. That's God's covenant love. And when we see, going back to verse 5, then they will seek me. Then they will seek David their king. Because when you see Christ hang on the cross in the love of God, God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ what? Died for us. When, when, when God's people in the wilderness are called back to Jesus and people preach the gospel of Christ and they see Christ hang on the cross, guess what God's bride does? They see it, their hearts start to get changed by the power of the Spirit and they come back. And they say, yes, Lord. I love you. I trust you. This is the cross-centered love of God. The purchasing love of God. He buys back his bride. And so we sing songs like, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell, to the most promiscuously idolatrous people. 
O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels song. If you're not a Christian, here's the best news you can hear. Well, first, the bad news. The bad news is we're all promiscuous spiritually before God. We're all idolatrous and we all deserve damnation. Here's the best news you'll ever hear now. Jesus loves you. God loves you. And God will save you from your sins. He sent his son, Jesus, to live the life you should have did, uh, you should have lived. He died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead if, if, big if, here's the call, if you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Will you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ? God is calling you in his covenant love to come back to him. Will you respond to his love? Do you see his love? He wants you back. And so he's calling you to trust in him and repent from your sins. Now, if you're a Christian, here's what I want you to do. This is why I talked, I, this is what I talked about in my introduction. You need to know this. I know you, you hear this, but I'll tell you again. Christian, God loves you. He loves you. You. He loves you. He rejoices over you. He sings over you, it says in another minor prophet, Zephaniah chapter 3. He confronts and convicts you to lead you to repent. He tells you about judgment and he points his finger and says, you are idolatrous. You are sexually immoral. Not because he doesn't love you, but because he does love you. He wants you back. God's not being mean when he's pointing the finger at you. He's trying to open your eyes because you are on your way towards destruction. You're about to fall over into destruction and God is pointing at your sin to get you to turn around, to come back to him because he loves you. Church family, if you're a member of Bethany Baptist Church, what does this mean for us as a church? God calls you, BBC, to love and trust him in this broken world so that in our lives we display the love of God with our words and with our life, like Hosea displayed. We embody Christ. We're the body of Christ, right? If you're the body of Christ, you embody Christ in your relationships. We embody Christ as a church family in our relationships together, in our relationships with Bellflower and Southeast Los Angeles and the world. We embody the hard relationships. We embody the love of God. That's what we do. God loves, I love this about God. God loves to make his love clear, not only with words, but with people, with his people. He loves to make clear to a dying, lost, confused, immoral, idolatrous world that he loves them. And he does it through us. Praise God for being such a, a God of love and clarity. So how do we return in love? First, we see his love. Secondly, we hear about the judgment. We hear about the doom, chapters four and five. I'm gonna go quick here on, on this one. Okay, God says, hear the judgment. Look at, verse, look at chapter four, verse one. There's the command. Here's our first command here for, for the people. And it's verse one. What is the command? Say it, first word. What is it? Hear. Hear the word of the Lord, people of Israel. There's two things to hear. Hear the case against you and then hear of God's judgment on you. Hear the case against you and hear God's judgment on you. So chapter four um, is hear God's case against you. Chapter five is hear God's judgment on you. So look at chapter four. It says, hear the word of the Lord, people of Israel. Why? For the Lord has a what? He has a case against the inhabitants of the land. What, what's the case? There is no truth, no faithful love, no knowledge of God in the land. Cursing, lying, murdering, stealing, and adultery are what? Rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another. That's the sin. That's the case against, against Israel. You have sinned. Verse six, look at verse six. He talks to the priest and others. My people are destroyed for a lack of what? 
Knowledge, you are damned and destroyed because you don't know what you need to know. Why don't you need to know it? Is it because no one gave you the information? No. Romans 1 says you suppress the truth and righteousness. What does Hosea say in verse 6 of chapter 4? Because you have what? Why don't you know? Because you've what? You've rejected knowledge. I will reject you from serving as my priest. He's talking to the priests here. Why are the priests rejected? And even the holy priesthood as an extension, all of Israel? Because even though God told them who he was, they rejected it, just like we do today. You need more than knowing here in your head. You need to know in your heart. Okay, look at verses 10 through 12. Verse 10 says, They eat but are not satisfied. Here's the case against them. They'll be promiscuous but not multiply, for they have abandoned their devotion to Yahweh. Promiscuity, wine, and new wine take away one's understanding. My people consult. When you need advice, who do you go to? Who do they go to? This is how ridiculous their advice is. My people consult who? Their wooden idols and their divining rods to inform them. Why? For a spirit of promiscuity leads them astray. They act promiscuously in disobedience to their God. I need advice. You know what I'm going to ask? I'm going to ask this metal can that I made because it's so wonderful. That's ridiculous. But that's what we do in our idolatry. That's the case against God's people. Look at verse 14. People, are, people without discernment are doomed. Look at verse 16. For Israel is as obstinate as a stubborn cow. And they're, they're, they have golden cows that they're worshiping, right? You're as stubborn as the golden cows that you worship. Can the Lord now shepherd, the, shepherd them like a lamb in an open meadow? They're not teachable. They already have their own way. They have it figured out. They don't want the counsel of God. Psalm 23, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. And God's saying, how can I shepherd you? You don't even acknowledge me as your shepherd. You don't want to listen to me. You don't want to listen to David, my faithful king. So that's the case against them. And what's the judgment against them? Look at chapter 5. If that's the case against them, what's the judgment against them? The judgment is in chapter 5. Look at verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1. Here you have the second command. What is it again? Hear this, Israel. Hear this, priests. Pay attention, house of Israel, not just priests, but all of the house, the nation. Listen, royal house. Listen, kings. Priests, kings, and everyone. For what? The judgment applies to you because you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out at Tabor. And then verse, chapter, uh, verse two, I will be a punishment for all of them. That's what it says in verse two. Look at verse four. Their actions do not allow them to return to their God. That's part of their judgment, that they don't even want to return to God. Verses, verse nine, they have become a desolation on the day of punishment. They will be. Verse 10, I will pour out my fury on them like water. God is, God is angry. Verse 12, I am like a rot to Ephraim and like decay to the house of Judah. Verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, Ephraim, when Ephraim was sick, where did they go? To God? No. Where did they go? To who? To Assyria, another nation, and sent a delegation to the great king. That's where they went for help. But he can't cure you or heal your wound. So when, here, here's just a political situation. When Egypt was against, against them, or when another, I'm not sure if it was Egypt, when an outside nation was against Israel, the northern kingdom, they went to Assyria for help. They didn't pray to Yahweh their God. They went to another nation for their help. So what does God say? And this is us. Look at verse 14. Or here's the judgment. I'm sorry. Here's the judgment, verse 14. I am like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Yes, I will tear them to pieces and depart. Like a, like a lion killing prey. That's what God is to Israel. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to tear you to pieces. I will carry them off and no one can rescue them. I will depart and return to my place until they recognize their guilt and seek my face. They will search for me in their distress. So even there you see God's love. He's trying to convict them. He's trying to judge them so that he can waken up some of them to be his people. See that there? 
That's what God's doing. That's the, that's the judgment, okay? So not only are you to see God's love in Hosea marrying a promiscuous woman twice, so see God's love for you. Secondly, the second point is, hear the judgment. You are sinning. Israel, you're sinning, and doom is coming. Judgment is coming. Exile is coming. That's point number two. Application here for you, Christian, hear God's judgment. Hear your sin. Hear of your sin. When people rebuke you and point out sin, are you teachable? Or do you put a deaf ear and give all kinds of excuses why you're not guilty? Self-defense and self-justification, immediate self-defense and self-justification is a clue that you're not teachable, that you're not hearing what God is saying. We need a culture in this church of rebuke, not because we like rebuke, but because we love God and we want people to love God. And so sin harms us and hinders us from loving God and enjoying God. So let us be a church where we hear of rebuke with an open ear and a soft heart. If you're not a Christian, I want you to know this. When Christians tell you that you're going to hell for your sins, it's not because we're mad. It's not because we're mean, and it's not because, at least in, the, in, the, in our best cases, I know we're hypocrites sometimes, and we need to be confronted and rebuked about that, but it's not because we think we're better. When we tell you that judgment is coming, we tell you because we want you to hear the judgment, because judgment is coming. God does not play the fool for long. He's patient, but his patience does run out. And there is judgment. If you don't turn from your sins and trust in Jesus, all you have is judgment coming. And so when Christians tell you, non-Christian friend, about judgment to come, it's because we're trying to wake you up to the reality. Even one of our own church members got saved because one of his friends told him, I think you're going to hell. And he became a Christian. Not right away, but he started to woke him up. That's what, that's what this is doing here, chapters four and five. Hear God's judgment, okay? God warns us because he loves us and because he's faithful to his righteousness. Okay, so the main goal again, main goal is return in love to Yahweh, your God, so that you enjoy God's love in his new creation kingdom. How do you return in God's love? Number one, see his love in the Hosea picture, embodied. Secondly, hear God's judgment. So there's a sight, you're using your, your eyes, you're using your ears, and lastly, return or walk back to God. So you're using your feet now, okay? Return to God or respond to God, respond to Yahweh. So see his love, hear his judgment, use your feet to respond now to Yahweh. That's chapter six to 14. Now this is the biggest chunk. I'm not gonna spend the most time on it. I'm gonna try to keep this as short as the first point because I got 15 more minutes here to make it less than an hour or so. Uh, respond to Yahweh, okay, chapter six, verse one. Now, how do you respond? There's two ways, okay, two things here. You respond by recognizing and you respond by repenting. Respond by recognizing your sin and judgment, respond by repenting. So first you were hearing it, now you gotta recognize it. So in chapter six through nine, you have this recognize your sin. In chapter six, look at six, one through three. Come, let us return to who? The Lord, this is the next command. Come, let us return to the exhortation. Here's the application. This, is, this would be, this, these next exhortations, this is what I think the main goal of the, whole, of the whole book is. Come, let us return to the Lord. Why? For he has torn us and he will heal us. He has judged us, he has wounded us, but he will bind up our wounds. He will revive us. So what is God saying? Come return to God. Why? He has judged you, but he will save you. He has hurt you, but he will heal you. Now here's the, here's, how's he gonna do that? Well, look at verse two. 
He will revive us after two days. And on the? On the what? Third day, he will what? Raise us up. Third day, resurrection. Hmm. Sound familiar? On the third day, he will raise us up. So we can live in his presence. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, I delivered unto you the first importance of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and was buried and was raised on the third day according to the what? Scriptures. There's no scripture that says God's going to raise the Messiah on the third day. There's no verse that says it. But you have these third day verses in the Old Testament. There's like seven of them. This is one of the clearest. On the third day, I will raise you up. But who was raised on the third day? Jesus. Were you raised on the third day? No. Yes. Yes, you were. Right? You were. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, God made us alive together with Christ and seated us in heaven. Are you sitting in heaven right now? Yes. Did you die with Christ? Yes. Did you rise with Christ on the third day? Yes. Are you seated with Christ in the heavenlies right now? Yes. That's what Ephesians 2 says. When you're baptized, that's a symbolism of the fact that you're united to Christ. So did God raise up his people on the third day? Yes. In who? Unite to who? To Christ himself. How does God save a people to return to him? Through his Messiah. And in his Messiah, all his people will be raised on the third day. So happy Lord's Day. Happy Lord's Day is not just about Christ's resurrection. Happy Lord's Day is about your resurrection. That already happened. And you are now seated with Christ in the heavens. All right, so on this third day, God, God promises this. And so what does he say? What should, what's the application again in verse three? Let us what? Let us strive to know the Lord. Because what was their problem before? They didn't know God. They didn't know him. They rejected knowledge. Let us strive to know God. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. He is coming. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. God is coming. Now for them, Jesus didn't even come the first time. So, so Hosea is saying, God is coming. The Messiah is coming. The end is coming. So return to God. Seek him. Now, what am I telling you? We're on the other side of Jesus' cross and resurrection. But what am I telling you? I'm telling you the same thing. Come to God. Seek him. Seek to know him. Because even though Christ came once, he's also going to come again. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. That's our prayer. And between the comings of Christ, they were before the first coming. We're right here in between the two comings. Even we do the same thing. The application to you is seek the Lord. Come. Come and seek him. Return to the Lord. Why? Why do we need to return to the Lord? Look at verse 4. What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What am I going to do with you, Judah? Here's their problem. Here's our problem. Here's your problem. Verse 4, your love is like a what? Like the morning mist, like the early dew that vanishes. The grass was probably wet this morning. Still wet right now? No. Just a few hours, perhaps, and now it's, it's gone. That's like your what? Your love. That's how your love is towards God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And what is your love like? Is it like that? Loving God with all that you are all the time? Is that how your love is? No. Your love is like the morning dew. That's what your love is like. And because of that, God says he's judging us. Why? Look at verse 6. What does God desire? I desire faithful love and not what? Sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I don't want you to just go through the motions. I don't care. I mean, I want you to go to church, but I don't just desire that you come to church. I want your heart. God is saying to you today. I don't want you to just attend the church. I want you to be all in with the church, with Jesus. I don't want you to just go through the motions and give. I want you to know me here and here. And yet they were content to just know God here. And so they didn't really know him at all. 
Fake believers in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, fake Christians in the New Covenant. Same problem. They don't really love God. Their love is like the morning dew. And so what is, what's God's assessment in verse 7? But they, Israel, like Adam, have what? Violated the what? The covenant. There they betrayed me. Adam betrayed God in the garden. He broke the covenant. And guess what Israel has done? They broke the Israeli covenant. And that's what we have done as well. We break God's covenant as his image bearers. And so we deserve God's judgment. They don't even notice their sins. They have pagan ideas in chapter 7. They have a look at uh, 7.16. We'll just read one verse from chapter 7. They turn, they repent, but do they turn to God? No, they turn, but not to what is what? Not what is above. They are like a faulty bow. They don't turn to things above. They don't seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. They don't seek God's knowledge. They just turn to other people. They turn from one sin, and instead of going to God, they turn to another sin. I'm going to stop committing this sin, and instead I'm going to commit this other sin. Godless. And in verse 15, it says that they plot evil against God. Here's a very important thing for you to know, whether you're not a Christian or a young Christian. Every single sin you commit against anyone is always a sin against who? God. It's always a personal sin against God. I'm just sinning against my neighbor. I don't really, I don't have any beef with God. I just have beef with my neighbor. Beef with your neighbor is beef with who? It's beef with God. If you're sinning against your neighbor, that is. If you sin against your neighbor, you're sinning personally against God. And so God says, you're plotting evil against me. You mistreat one of my image bearers, you're mistreating the, the person whose image they bear. You're mistreating me. And that's their sin. And so because of that, in chapter 8, God announces judgment. He announces their sin. He announces their whoring idolatry. And he announces that they're going to have a reverse exodus. Instead of coming out of Egypt to God's promised land, they're leaving the promised land. They're going to back to Egypt. Reverse it. Rewind it. Forget it. I take back my redemption of you. Go back to Egypt in your slavery because you, you follow them anyways. And so here we learn that um, we need to preach judgment so that people will come back. We need to not take judgment lightly. We need to return to God. And then in chapter 9, we need to mourn for judgment. We need to mourn for judgment. Why do we need to mourn for it? Because we have sinned against God. So it says in chapter 9, verse 1, Israel, don't what? Do not what? Do not rejoice jubilantly as the nations do, for you have acted promiscuously, leaving your God. And then it says in verse 3, you'll return to Egypt, and they will eat the unclean food in Assyria. So not literally going back to Egypt, it's symbolic. You're going to go back to Egypt by going to Assyria. Go to Assyria, that is the symbol that I am taking back my redemption of you. I'm taking back that, you broke the covenant, cancel it, go back. Get out of my place, get out of my land. Adam and Eve, get out of the garden. Israel, get out of my promised land flowing with milk and honey because um, of what you've done. And so God calls them in verse 7 of chapter 9 to recognize their sin and recognize the judgment rather than ignoring the prophets. In chapter 10, he calls them to repent. And here's a key passage. Let's go to this key passage. Go to chapter 10, verse 12. Maybe this will be the uh, 10, through 10, 10, verse 12. He tells them here, here's a command. This might be another way of saying the main goal of the sermon and the main goal of the passage. Sow righteousness for yourselves, Israel, and reap faithful love. Break up your unplowed ground. Soften your heart. It's time to seek who? The Lord, Yahweh. Until when? How long should I seek God? Until when? Until he comes and sends righteousness on you like the rain. So when he says repent, he's saying repent patiently. Have you ever tried to seek the Lord and then he took too long, so then you stopped seeking him? 
You've been praying about something, you just gave up. You know God wants you to do something, you're like, okay, God, I'm going to obey you until you do it, and God doesn't come through. You feel like God took too long? God's saying here, how long should you seek me? Until when? Until I send my righteousness, until I come. I am coming. You repent patiently. You don't set the timeline of repentance. Repent with patience. And repent, you know, just keep repenting until he comes. In Hosea 11.1, 1, this is neat. I wish I could spend more time on it. You can listen to my Matthew 2 sermon if you want from the New Testament side. But look at Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, I what? I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Have you ever heard that verse in the New Testament? That's Matthew 2.15. When, when Jesus went down to Egypt, because he was running from Herod, God called Jesus out of Egypt. And then Matthew said, that fulfills the promise. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But when you're reading Hosea 11.1, this is not a promise. This is history. Out of Egypt, I called my son. What is, what is Matthew? How does Jesus fulfill Hosea 11.1? Out of Egypt, I called my son. I'll tell you how. God says in verse 6, go, go to Hosea 11.5. Look at 11.5. Israel will not return to the land of Egypt, but who will be his king? Assyria will be his king because they refuse to repent. So just like they were in Egypt, now they're where? In Assyria, in exile. And so God's going to leave them there. Is God going to leave them though? Is God divorcing them finally and, and giving up on them? Look at verse 8. Here you see God's heart of love again. Listen to God's emotion here. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma and treat you like Zeboim? I have, I have had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. I will not vent the full fury of my anger, even though I kicked you out of the land. I will not turn back and destroy you from him. Why? For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in rage. So what are they going to, so I'm going to change them. What's the promise here? They will follow the Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will what? will come, trembling from where? From the west, they will be roused like birds from where? Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will settle them where? In their homes. Okay, everyone look up here. You just need to get this for you to understand Old Testament, New Testament. What does it just say there? It said this, I can't abandon them. I kick them out of the land. I can't leave them there. I love them too much. My heart is stirred with compassion. I gotta go after her. So what does he do? He says, I'm going to call them out like a lion. And when I do, they're going to come from the west. They're going to come from Egypt. They're going to come from Assyria. And they're going to come back. And I'll put them where? In their what? In their homes. In their own land. Just like God took them out of Egypt the first time, in a, the first Exodus redemption, now that they're in exile, God is going to do a second Exodus redemption. He's going to take them out of a new figure of Egypt. Take them out of Assyria and bring them back to the land. So when Matthew reads this, and he quotes it in Hosea, or in, in Matthew chapter 2, he's saying, when Jesus came out of Egypt as a little kid, out of Egypt I called my son. Ah, when Jesus came, Jesus is coming, fulfills this second exodus. God brings his people back to the land, to God's kingdom, through Jesus, the boy who came back from Egypt. Does that make sense? You see how Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises of a second exodus? So they need to repent patiently. Um, next, in, in chapter 11 through 13, they need to repent fruitfully. They need to keep returning and repenting. And then in chapter, um, yeah, they need to keep repenting because they have disobeyed God and God wants to save them. So recognize, this is the third point about responding to God. Recognize your sin, brothers and sisters. Israel needs to recognize their sins and repent. You need to recognize your sins and repent. Repent patiently, repent enduringly. I'm not going over those verses for the sake of time. I'm just giving you an overview here. And then um, respond to God and call each other to repent. 
Because the main goal is return in love to Yahweh your God so that you enjoy God's love in his new Christian kingdom. And how do you return in love? You see, you see his love, you hear about his judgment, and you walk, you respond with your feet, you turn and return to God with repentance that's patient, that's enduring. And here's my last call to action. I'm actually closing my last point with my conclusion together. And the last way of repenting is repenting prayerfully. Go to chapter 14, last chapter. Chapter 14. If you're a church member here, I'm gonna, and if anyone wants this, I'll send you um, my outline of the, of the book because one of my challenges is for you to read this book and get deeper into it because I'm just giving an overview here. But here's the prayer. Here's the prayer goal. Chapter 14, verse one. First, the command, Israel, return to Yahweh your God for you have stumbled in your iniquity. Now here, take the words of repentance and return to the Lord. Say to him, and here's my closing call to you. You need to pray this prayer with your new covenant understanding. Verses two and three, pray this prayer. God's giving you words to pray. Okay, so don't get mad when people come up here with a prayer of praise and it's written. Here's a written prayer, okay? Here's a written prayer. God, forgive all our what? Iniquity and accept what is good so that we may repay you with praise from our lips. So forgive us for our iniquity. Verse three, Assyria will not save us. When I was praying this last night, I was saying, a healthy church won't save me. A good family won't save me. Health won't save me. Money and owning a home won't save me, God. I'm repenting from all the other things I put my hope in as a pastor, as a Christian, as a man, as a husband, as a father. So put, fill in your, what are you hoping in? Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses and we'll no longer proclaim our gods to these things, these idols, to the work of our hands. For the fatherless receives compassion in who? In God. This is the prayer. So here's my call to you, brothers and sisters. Pray a prayer like this. Repent from your sins. Ask God to forgive you. And look at the things you're leaning on in your life. Your Assyria, your horses, your idols that you've made and you lean on in your life for your security and your strength and trash them. I don't trust in these things, God. Compassion comes from you. You're the husband who never leaves me. I will rest in you. Forgive me for my idolatry and my adultery. Forgive us. Not just forgive me. Pray if you're a member of the church. Pray for Bethany Baptist Church. Forgive our church for our church idolatry and our church adultery against you. That's the call. So read over Hosea and pray this prayer meaningfully. If you don't, you will be overridden with guilt and be unaware of your sin. If you don't repent and pray a prayer like this regularly, you will be doomed to judgment because your repentance won't last. And if you don't pray prayers like this regularly, you will be cut off from God's love, from God's word and God's ways. You won't know God. But if you pray and repent individually and corporately as a church family, if we repent regularly with this kind of heart prayer, not just mind prayer, but heart prayer, God will forgive us and free us now and repeatedly. God will prepare a place for us to live with him in the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation kingdom. God will freely love us as a faithful, committed husband. And God will give us understanding and insight into his word and ways. That's what I just summarized to you at the end of chapter 14. That's the reasons why we pray this prayer. He just gives us in verses four to verse eight. Those are the reasons why we pray this prayer. So I'll close with verse nine. As the last verse, here's the last call to you. I want you guys to read Hosea. I'm gonna give you the outline by the church email. I want you to read Hosea this week and pray this prayer this week regularly. And here's the call from God, last call. So as you pray and read, here's the call from God. 
Let whoever is wise here in this room, let whoever is wise hearing my voice, understand these things. Understand these things. And whoever is insightful, let him recognize these things. Why? For the ways of the Lord in Hosea are right. And the righteous walk in these things. But the rebellious stumble over a book like this. They're bored with Hosea. Not you. Let us understand and walk in these things. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to see your love. We pray that you'd help us to hear and feel the judgment that everyone in us deserves. And then we pray that you would move our feet to walk and respond to you with a prayerful, enduring, and patient repentance, recognizing our sin and recognizing the judgment we deserve. So cause us to pray this week, Father. Cause us to read and cause us to repent. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died for sinners, that you rose from the dead, that you are the one who raised us. You're the new David. You are the husband. You're the husband who gave your life for your bride. We love you, we thank you, and we love your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, go ahead.